Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part two of a three-part series featuring conversations between faculty and alumni about pivotal issues of 2020 and the light they shined on social inequities. Assistant Professor of Criminology Clinton Nichols was joined by two alumni, Benjamin Jones, class of 2007, a field training officer with the Chicago Police Department, and Berto Aguayo, who graduated in 2017 and is a community organizer and founder of Increase the Peace. The conversation was recorded on September 3, 2020, and was moderated by Dominican University's Chief Diversity Officer, Sheila Radford-Hill. I'm Sheila Radford-Hill, and I am so delighted to be here to talk about issues of policing and police reform and criminal justice in our communities with three amazing gentlemen who will shed light on all of the challenges that we are hearing about when it comes to policing in the city of Chicago, in the county of Cook, and around the, the nation. I want to begin by saying that part of the reason that Dominicans Magazine is looking deeply into this particular issue is because of Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, an initiative that is starting this year at uh, Dominican. Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation, or TRHT, is a nationwide community-based movement for racial justice. TRHT challenges the notion of a human hierarchy, and by fostering solidarity across differences, sharing stories to create empathy and understanding, and using deep listening and dialogue, TRHT challenges the false narratives we believe about each other, the false narratives that control our behavior and lead to racist policy. TRHT is building new relationships, creating alliances and coalitions for change, and taking action to dismantle forms of oppression. We envision a world where racism ends and all people of color have access to resources and power. I am going to be asking some questions and I will then say sort of 
who the question is directed to, but feel free to chime in if you have something to say. And I will be talking with, of course, Clinton Nichols, the Assistant Professor of Criminology here at Dominican, Benjamin Jones, a Chicago police officer and a an, uh, Dominican alum, who is also a field training officer, and Berto Aguayo, a community organizer, the founder of Increase the Peace, and an Obama fellow. So I wanna begin by um, asking each of you the following. How are you doing? How are you checking in? There's a lot going on, a COVID-19 pandemic, a major recession, racial unrest, the destruction of small businesses, especially those businesses in disinvested communities, a spike in gun violence, and the knowledge that people are beginning to realize that we cannot go back to normal. We've got to create something different, something better. So with all that going on for 2020, how are you all doing? And I'm going to begin with Berto. Uh, thank you, Sheila. Uh, thank you everyone for putting this together. Um, couple quick notes. Uh, I am one of the original travelers of the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Initiative that went, you know, Carlsbad back in the day, I think 2017 or 18. Uh, and then um, I was a former national leadership trainer with the Obama Foundation. I don't know, Obama fellow, just want to uh, put that for the edits. Um, but I am doing well. Uh, I am, uh, like, I think everybody is tired and, and a little drained and uh, looking forward to taking a little mental health break uh, as soon as I get the chance after things die down a little bit. Ben, how are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm doing fine. Um, as fine as I can be right now. Uh, it's been it's been definitely difficult 2020 um, the year in, in, its, in its entirety. Um, but it's it, it, it's something that I, I've been dealing with in my own ways. And, you know, similar to Berto, I'm just looking forward to just getting a break at some point and having some time to myself to uh, kind of heal mentally, physically, uh, spiritually, and uh, kind of gather myself and go forward from there. Thank you, Ben. This is the first week of classes, Dr. Nichols. How you doing? I'm already behind um, in terms of uh, in terms of my classes, um, but uh, I'm very grateful for um, the patience of, of my students um, and very grateful for uh, supportive colleagues um, in my department and and across the university. Um, and then, uh, how am I doing? Otherwise, um, I would say that I. I'm tired. Um, it definitely has felt um, uh, sort of like uh, um, waves. Uh, just you know, just when you think you get a bit of a, a break, uh, some other wave comes crashing at you. Um, and so uh, um, this has been uh, um, this has been very challenging um, since uh, uh, since March. It's it's been very challenging um, 
So I'm trying to find uh, productive ways to reflect. I'm trying to, um, I have been trying to bike uh, regularly as some, some form of like exercise. Um, so uh, um, I've been trying to clean my apartment. I'm growing a tomato. Um, so there's some beautiful things that are happening. Um, um, and then of course there's a, just trying to hold back uh, um, the less positive things. Um, so being very conscious and intentional about how much media I'm exposing myself to, for example. Well, thank you for that. I want to um, talk to both of our alumni for a moment because both of you have been involved in different ways in efforts to create peace in our communities. Binyamin, you joined the police force in an effort to prevent the classroom to prison pipeline and to serve our communities. And you've also been involved in a program called Becoming a Man, which brings together at-risk youth and the police for basketball games, followed by roundtable discussions. Berto, as a community organizer and founder of Increase the Peace, you've been involved in registering people to vote, providing food and essential items to people, and as well as efforts to create black and brown solidarity. For each of you, how are these efforts going, both in terms of what you have devoted your life to, your lives to, and also in terms of how Dominican influenced you to move in this direction in your careers in the first place? So please tell us, starting with you, Berto, how have you been able to do the work that you're doing and how has Dominican prepared you for that work? Um, so, you know, Increase the Peace, uh, we founded uh, the organization back in 27, uh, 2016, October about to be four years, and our main mission is to prevent violence through community organizing, leadership development, uh, and policy advocacy that tackle the root cause of violence. And, you know, since March, we had to pivot to meet the community where it's at and do a whole bunch of events that you just mentioned, food pantries, uh, a street vendor relief program in which we give street vendors $500 to get by. Um, we were protecting small businesses uh, peacefully in our neighborhoods. Uh, to prevent them from being looted. We also organized black and brown unity car caravans and, and peace parades uh, to increase um, relationships and camaraderie among African-Americans and Latinx folks in our neighborhood. And I think one of the ways in which Dominican really prepared me, I mean, I think almost subconsciously is, you know, that idea of pursuing, you know, love and truth, uh, which I think you know, Caritas, Veritas, I think that led me to be more receptive to reacting and using the nonviolence philosophy that I'm okay uh, laid out in the 60s in the now, right? Um, and one, some of the principles of nonviolence that, that are really, I think, hard in, mom in moments like these is, you know, principle one, which is nonviolence is courageous, it's not passive, right? Two weeks ago, I was getting beat up with batons and pepper sprayed by police downtown. And it was really hard to, to not react, react with violence to violence, right? Um, 
And additionally, telling our young people one of the other principles, which is uh, we are fighting uh, the evil. We're not fighting the evil doers. We're fighting injustice, not those who are committing injustice, right? So when we're talking about efforts to uh, defund the police in order to have more things in our neighborhood, I think Dominican really influenced me to look at things holistically and say, it's not that I don't like police officers, it's that I hate the system that creates tension between communities of color and police officers. Uh, we don't hate gang members, we hate the conditions that are created in our society that lead for people to, to join gangs and communities of color. So I think that's how my Dominican education um, and the knowledge that I got really influenced the work that we do now. Thank you. So Ben, you've been involved in increasing peace in communities as a police officer. Can you say a little bit about how your experience and your work at Dominican really prepared you for the work you're doing now? Um, sure. Um, it, it's been difficult as a police officer in current times to um, deal with the, um, what I feel like sometimes is just pure anger at um, a few who have maybe done something that isn't um, morally right or um, legally right. Um, and it, that, that anger has been, um, uh, just spread amongst the, the many because of the few, act, uh, because of the actions of a few. Um, as far as my experience with, uh, at Dominican, when I, when I came to Dominican, um, 2003, the cultural diversity at Dominican was, um, needed development, needed to be expanded, needed to see more black and brown faces, Hispanics, uh, African-Americans, and it, it, it lacked a wealth of diversity. Um, over the course of my time there, uh, that expanded. I think maybe my freshman year in 03, there might have been um, a total about 20 students. I may not be factual, but 20 African-American students. I may not be factually correct about that, but the, the population disparity between um, African-American, Hispanic, and um, uh, Caucasians was, uh, there was a large gap there. And um, just, you know, kind of overcoming um, being in a new atmosphere <clears throat> where I come from a neighborhood that's predominantly black uh, and, um, with neighboring neighborhoods that have Hispanics. Um, so coming from that type of atmosphere, it was, it was kind of difficult to um, navigate um, being in a place where I was really the minority um, in appearance as well as um, uh, economically. Um, so, you know, I, I developed as a person um, through that and um, along with um, playing sports, I played basketball there. Many, if, uh, if you didn't know, um, I was 
four years. And, um, I'm part of the men's basketball team. So Coach White was uh, instrumental and incremental in, in allowing me to develop and helping me develop through those challenging times that we had. Um, and I'm a better person for it now. And uh, so um, with Becoming a Man, that was a program that was started that was collaborated with uh, Becoming a Man at the Chicago Police Department. And what happens is um, we get together and we uh, play, a, play a tournament of basketball. And between the games, we get, that, we get an opportunity to sit down with the youth um, from different high schools in the area and just, you know, allow them to see us as people. Like, we're, we're real. We're not robots. And um, have that conversation with them to kind of ease some of the tensions that they may – ease some of the tensions and fears even that they may have and that we have of them. Um, so all of it has uh, culminated together to – bring me to where I am today. Thank you for that. Both of you have two different perspectives on policing in the city of Chicago. I heard Berto say that his perspective is a system that is not working for community people, and it's not working for the police as well. I heard, Ben, you say that there are a few people who are just simply angry or undisciplined or go rogue, and they are creating problems. My question to Clinton is, as a researcher, how do you pursue a research agenda that helps us understand more about policing, both in terms of the systems of policing and individuals who engage in deviant behavior. Is that what you do as a criminologist? Um, I'll say yes, uh, it can be one of the way, one of the things that a criminologist, a criminologist can do. Um, what I find fascinating uh, as, a, as a question, and I don't necessarily say that every criminologist would, um, necessarily, but there is a, a real question of sort of like this relationship between structure and agency. Um, and police departments are interesting um, in the sense that um, they are bureaucracies. Um, and so the city of Chicago's police um, is a large bureaucracy. I mean, it's about 13,000 sworn officers um, and then uh, a support staff uh, related to those 13,000 uh, uh, officers. So there are particular ways in which um, the public can get a view of the police as being robotic. Um, and that's in part because uh, when you are in a bureaucracy, uh, even though you might be able to identify, here's a faster way to do something, 
there are a whole host of reasons why, oh no, this is the procedure that has to be followed. Um, and that I think can be something that people find alienating as a particular experience. Um, a flip side, I think as well is that um, we can end up seeing situations where um, a bureaucracy allows for people to engage in deviant behavior. Um, so there's a recent uh, case, uh, six police officers, former and current police officers in the Boston area are being charged with um, overtime fraud. Um, and, and now there's a, you know, they're facing legal charges that, um, related to that. Um, and that's one example, um, but there could be others. And some of that speaks to the nature of how policing is done, um, that in many parts of the country, um, it can be literally uh, a single person in a squad car driving around. Um, and then you can start to realize that there are particular ways in which um, encounters um, can go sideways really quickly um, and procedures can not be followed um, appropriately. Um, so part of it's uh, a view of, do we see bad apples? Um, or do we, or do we say there are ways in which aspects of the entire structure are problematic? Um, and then, of course, would be what are the specific questions? So, what does it mean to think about uh, police officers of color, women police officers, LGBTQ police officers, and ways in which um, that lived experience of who they are? Um, might be supported or might face challenges within a police force that is still overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, um, and overwhelmingly um, in some cities like New York City, um, uh, limited to uh, even within, so like a, a group we would call white, limited to um, Irish, Italian, and a few other formerly white ethnic groups. Um, so I, hope I've offered just a broad sort of like outline of maybe some of, of the challenges and potentially how um, uh, it might be possible to see um, for Ben and for, for Berto ways in which um, me as a scholar might so sort of like show up on the scene and, and at the level of a community um, uh, uh, be collecting information, accounts, experiences from, from residents um, at the level of, of police officers. Um, getting their experiences um, and then trying to marry the two because um, policing is this is uh, our society's authorizing people to be able to uh, to use force in relation to um, behavior that we find problematic some of that behavior that we find problematic doesn't necessarily have to be criminal um, and we have a long history of problematic behavior necessarily not being criminal but police being used as a social control mechanism so um, I hope that uh, uh, shed some, some light. Well, what you have done is shed light and you've really complicated our understanding of what policing is and what it should look like. And I think that's an important conversation because we need to think about what policing is and what it should look like. We need to do that because since January, over 2,000 people have been shot in Chicago 
with about 440 homicides, according to the Chicago Police Department. Also, 51 officers have been shot since that time. This summer, therefore, is one of the deadliest since 2015 after the death of Laquan McDonald. Berto, what are your thoughts about why gun violence is spiking this summer? Uh, well, I think you have a situation in, in communities of color where racial inequities existed, disinvestment existed, right? People had, you know, in, in communities like like back of the yards or Redham Park or where we operate most heavily, just in back of the yards alone, a population of about 50,000 residents and about 5,000 young people that are unemployed and out of school. And that was pre-COVID-19. So now you take COVID-19 and you exacerbate a problem like that. So now you have a whole bunch of young people, uh, a whole bunch of families uh, who are in situations that they either haven't been before or they have worsened a lot in the past couple months. Um, so I think part, part, of the, part of the issue here is, is an issue of disinvestment uh, that has just been exacerbated by, by COVID-19. Um, and you, you look at those same communities that have been, that have seen a lot of violence. One of the models that we've used is just building relationships and targeting the people most in impacted by the issue of violence um, and giving them an opportunity to be the change makers of their own community. Um, and it's worked so far. Um, Fourth of July weekend, we partnered up with a lot of other African-American organizations and Latino leaders, and we were able to consecutively have events where we positively loitered in hot areas. And we had zero shootings in um, neighborhoods like Back of the Yard, Brighton Park, Gage Park, you know, one of the deadliest weekends um, in the year and one of the deadliest times that we've seen in recent, recent history. Um, so all that to say that it's a complicated issue, but I think at its root, a lot of it has, you know, class and racial, you know, that intersection of class and race causes. So the intersection of class, race, poverty, and just abject neglect of mm -hmm. communities has created a significant issue. But I do want to move beyond um, those conditions and add just one more layer, and that is gun violence and the availability of weapons. When you add that, the availability of guns to the other things that Berto described, we have seen a spike in gun violence in the city. Ben, how has that spike been talked about in the police department? How has it been analyzed? How have resources been influenced by that spike? Um, well, it's, it's hard to 
for for me to speak to what the exact root of the causes of the spikes in gun violence is. Um, there's absolutely, in my opinion, um, the access to firearms and weapons and some of these, the weapons that are out here are not as handguns. They're assault rifles, they're extended magazines. Um, there are uh, weapons out here where um, just one little um, tool is added to um, the weapon to make it an automatic weapon. So they have switches that can be attached to the to a semi-automatic weapon and, and change it into a full, fully loaded auto. Um, so the access to those type of um, tools and weapons um, is to me unacceptable. And um, I'm not at a level to even speak as to where those things are coming from um, as, and how they are getting to the streets. Um, but this the spike in gun violence, um, as uh, Berto was saying, it's, it's just a culmination and a um, just overall collection of the um, access to resources that our communities of color um, lack. Uh, whether that's you know the education system having activities, having access to um, you know jobs that pay a living wage um and then you have like you said the, the the classism that exists in that as well because even amongst our ourselves we um there's there's different classes of uh, economic classes i guess i, I should say and uh, those things have you know an effect as well so there needs to be an overall um reinvestment into the communities uh, of color because they're, they're lacking. They're lacking the resources, they're lacking the schools, um, and they're lacking the, the jobs. Uh, it, it, it's, it's as simple as just having um, nutrition, um, adequate nutrition and access to um, good, good um, grocery stores. Uh, you see it. I, I see it every day. I work in the Roseland area uh, currently, and Roseland, West Pullman, and there's there's one Walmart there. Um, there's there's not another grocery store, uh, adequate grocery store for miles uh, that people can have, um, you know, access to within one or two or three miles of where they live. So um, that's 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 another thing that needs to be taken care of. Um, People shouldn't have to go to a gas station to get food to eat. And that's what you see. The gas stations are crowded with people every day. And, it, and it, they're going there and they're getting stuff to eat. And the things that they're buying to eat aren't things of nutritional value. They're donuts, you know, candy, pop, you know. And, and along with that, the prices are ridiculously absurd. Uh, you, you might pay $5 for a small bottle of syrup at a gas station when that, that would normally cost maybe $2 at a regular grocery store. So let's just, um, things need to be looked at with a, um, 
with fresh eyes and really need to be uh, taken care of instead of just glossed over and say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Just, there needs to be some action and less, less talk. Well, I'm with you on that. I want to add another um, grim statistic. 1,500 people thus far this year have died from opioid overdoses in the city of Chicago, according to the Department of Public Health. Do you see this spike playing out in communities where you work? And this is both to Berto and Ben. Do you see these spikes playing out in communities where you work? And what can be done that isn't being done right now? Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. Um, as far as the, the opioid crisis, I, I, we do see, um, like I said, I, I work in Rosen, um, predominantly black, West Pullman, the Pullman area, predominantly black. Um, there are some Hispanic populations that exist in, in the area. Um, there are some opioid, opioid um, cases that, that I've seen that I come across. Um, but still, it's mostly uh, crack, crack cocaine problems. Um, I mean, wheat doesn't really play much of an issue as far as overdosing or anything like that. Um, but just being uh, strung out on any type of drug is um, just unfortunate for any community. And um, so I, I don't really see too, too, too much of a spike in my particular area as far as the opioid crisis is concerned. Um, but drugs in themselves, just they need to be, it's another issue, another problem, and it just adds to the other list of, long list of problems that um, need to be looked at and with a, um, like I said, with fresh eyes and a new way of attacking those issues needs to um, come to the forefront. Thank you, Berto. Yeah, and, and I think this goes to the, to the overall issue about where do we spend city resources, right? If resources are finite, right? If we don't have an unlimited supply of money, um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I acknowledge and I see because I have friends who are also police officers is just the how much exhaustion can, can be created. I mean, Ben was just talking about, you know, he won't see an, another off day in, until 19 days. Like that's insane. Like nobody should be going through work life that intensely, especially in Chicago, especially in places like Roseland. That's just not a positive workplace environment or workplace situation. And I think we've, we've, Basically, all of our problems that we face as a society, whether it's opioid crisis, whether it's lack of grocery stores, whether it's everything that we can think of, we just basically put it up in a ball and said, here, police officers, take care of it. And, and I just don't think that that's a good solution. I mean, if you look at the budget for the Chicago Police Department, that's 195 times the budget for substance abuse. <laughs> You know, where we started reallocating some of that money to, to people who are 
more adequately trained to deal with people who have issues of substance abuse, rehabilitation centers, and not just for, for opioids, but for crack, for other kinds, of other kinds of drugs that people in the neighborhood are addicted to. I just think that uh, we need to specialize the way we help our communities. And that also requires a reallocation of funding. Um, and it also requires us to look at our societal problems in a, in a way that doesn't say, hey, you know what, let's let police officers handle everything all of the all of our problems and create more positions where mental health workers, uh, substance abuse counselors can be in communities of color, can be in communities where these issues exist and provide the specialized help that these you know people need. Thank you. Clinton, um, Virtual brought up the the notion of and Ben did too of resource poor communities and resources going to departments to police those communities rather than to invest in them. The Chicago Police Department budget, according to their website, is 176 billion, not including grant funding. Do you think the community, the city, should hold hearings to discuss how to provide basic services and to provide new models of policing that can enhance public safety? Um, I would say yes, um, if only because uh, it's necessary for us to always collectively have a discussion about where our priorities, how are we spending, you know, taxpayer money. Um, I bring that up as an issue in my classes um, because even though um, I know that my students are probably not terribly concerned about sort of like where their tax money goes, I know that in about 10 years time, um, when many of them begin to have kids, um, they will suddenly become more concerned. And it's far better for them to begin to identify, hey, these are the important areas um, where I think, you know, there should be collective investment. Um, they identify those areas um, early on and maybe are thinking about, um, uh, you know, how they're going to become politically engaged, how they're going to become engaged in their communities, how they might, through their uh, professional lives, their work lives, uh, become engaged. Um, but I want to uh, piggyback a little bit because um, the question and response is related to gun violence um, and related to disinvestments, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, and related to, to um, the opioid crisis, I think speaks to um, an issue of suffering that we are not willing to acknowledge um, in this country. Um, a certain number of young people and I, I'm going out on a limb here, so uh, I'll be Ben and Berto to, to you know, let me know if I've gone too far and, and I'm, I'm like crazy professor. Um, but uh, a certain number of, of young people um, may gain access to, to guns with a sense of, I need this gun to, to sort of like protect myself, to display a certain type of, of, uh, of, of manhood or a certain type of, of uh, uh, you know, so like, a, you know, I'm, I'm stronger or I'm, or I'm tougher. Um, and I 
can understand that fear. Um, because I recall as a kid having fear, having fear of being beaten up in school. Um, I did not have access to, to weapons to protect myself. Um, but, uh, but I certainly know, uh, you know, or have some sense of, of what that fear might be. Um, Tanhasi Coates in, um, in his latest book um, talks about as a young person in school having a comparable type of fear. So that's, a, that's suffering and we need to, to call that out as such um, and then figure out how do we relieve that suffering because that suffering plays out in other ways. It plays out in ways in which young men may act disrespectfully towards young women um, it plays out, obviously, uh, very tragically in some cases of violence. Um, it plays out when we see young people and older people making very rational decisions in terms of how are they going to, you know, put food in their belly? How are they going to try to keep the lights on and a roof over their heads? Um, and I may disagree with those decisions, but uh, as um, it's mentioned in the documentary, The House I Live In, um, when drug dealing is the only company in, in so like uh, a one company town, guess what? You're going to most likely deal drugs or you're going to have to leave the town. <laughs> and we have neighborhoods, we have parts of the city, parts of the suburbs, parts of this country where you have a one company type of situation. Um, and, and that one company uh, potentially is being, becoming involved in um, uh, an activity uh, that's illegal, an activity that uh, can be incredibly problematic of, uh, in terms of uh, causing people to sort of like uh, get caught up in our legal system, but also deeply problematic in terms of the harms it causes to other people. Um, so, I think we have to have a, a real discussion about how are we allocating resources um, in the city. Um, my partner lives in, in Lakeview. I live in Pilsen um, or, or near Pilsen. Um, and the fact that in Lakeview and Lincoln Park, um, there was more investment for housing um, you know, in, in those neighborhoods than there was in all of the black neighborhoods in Chicago combined, um, that, that speaks to a certain operation um, of the economy and of our politics um, that needs to change. Um, and we should not be afraid to open up the box in terms of sort of like city funding, county funding, in terms of saying, hey, how are we allocating these dollars? Um, you know, and figuring out over what would likely be a number of years if we want to reallocate. Um, you know, we either are, you know, we either grow the pie by, you know, taxing everybody more um, and reallocating money that way, or it's a matter of where it's going to be deciding, you know what, in this pot, we're paying this amount of dollars here, and in this pot, we're paying this amount of dollars, and we're changing that allocation. Well, Berto put in the chat that the police department's budget is 1.7 billion. I said 1.76 billion, and I did not include monies that the police receive by applying for grants. So there could be a good conversation about that part of the budget or any part of the city budget. 
But I have a question for Ben, at least initially, about the nights of protest after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. These nights were marred, although the protests were overwhelmingly peaceful, these nights were marred by violence and looting. And during that time, some accused the mayor of protecting property downtown, but not in the neighborhoods. Some accused the mayor of being turning a blind eye to the suffering of people and protecting property. Can you comment on the city's plan to protect protesters and stop violence? And how do you think it worked? Um, so the, the initial protest, um, not exactly sure what day it was. I feel like it was sometime like July 13th, something along that time frame. Um, as, as a city, um, as a department, I don't feel um, that we were expecting things to go the way that they did. Um, as far as the, the looting, I, I think the protest might have been expected, but I think the just overall and outright looting of, um, and it was, it was mass looting. It wasn't just a couple of areas. It was downtown. It was the west side. It was the east side. It was the south side. Um, I don't think that any area in the city of Chicago went untouched by some sort of looting. Um, some places more than others. Um, as it as it pertains to protecting downtown versus um, the poorer communities or the, the communities of color or just the overall um, out I guess outskirts of anything outside of downtown. I don't think that that's true at all. Um, again, I work in a district in Roseland, West Pullman. And when my day is canceled, most I'm, I'm, that's where I'm at. That's where I am. I'm posted um, a lot of times on foot, sometimes in a car, uh, protecting the businesses that's within that community. Uh, I, I think that test had good intent for maybe the people in it. I think that those things, when you have um, large those, um, who don't have such good intentions to like, hijack or overrun those protests. Um, I think I got disconnected there. Am I still on? Yes, you're on. Okay. You're um, back. Cool. Um, so um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, 
Oh, I'm saying that the I think that it creates an opportunity for those protests to be hijacked um, by those who have less than um, positive um, intentions, and it's unfortunate. And then it gets it gets blamed, or it, or it looks like in the media, and and you know that's a lot of the places where we get our sources of news um, that the the protests weren't peaceful. And um, the the looting and and destruction of the property, I think that that was mostly done by people who are who are opportunistic, who just saw it as an opportunity to um, do something and get a, do something criminal in nature, steal, loot, and get away with it, and have it uh, blamed on uh, on another person. Um, as far as you know what what has been going on um or the, the measures that have been put in place going forward um again as i as i stated earlier i've i've had my days my weekends were canceled last week um this past week my weekends are going to be canceled again um this coming weekend for labor day um and you know like i said we've when, when my days off are canceled and uh, for those who have their days off canceled their their um, assignment is to protect the businesses within those districts. Now, if things do um, go awry downtown, um, those resources are there to, not all of them, but some resources are taken from the districts and sent downtown. And I think that's rightfully so. I mean, that's where a lot of the business that's where a lot of the money for the city is produced. Um, just it's it's just a fact. So I think though that those things do need to be protected because again, that's where a lot of the money is generated. But that's not to say that you know the neighborhoods don't need to be protected. But also, you know, with that being said, there has to be some onus put on people as individuals to not do these things. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to just blame the police or blame the politicians um, for actions that you're doing. If you're destroying your community, then shame on you. You have to go to those places to shop. You have your, your parents, your grandparents need to go to those places to get their medication. So you're harming yourself by doing those things. So some onus needs to be put on individuals. Um, that partake in those type of activities and not just put on the police as we should shop. We we can't stop them. We're we're thirteen thousand strong, and that's that's being generous because of things like medical leave, injuries. Um, so we're not thirteen thousand strong at, at all times. So um, so you talk about thirteen thousand, you know, strong when there this is a three million, you know, people population populated city. So. Uh, we can't, there's no way that we could stop that. Uh, we can deter it, hopefully, you know, we can um, get out, try to get out ahead of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, people need to take responsibility for their actions and not partake in it. Well, thanks for sharing. I want to move to um, one more question regarding the Chicago police, and then I want to move into something else. Clinton, this question really goes to you. Um, 
and and I just want to hear your response to it, but anyone else can chime in. In January of 2017, the Justice Department found probable cause to believe that the Chicago police had engaged in a pattern or practice of using unnecessary force against Black and Latinx people. And this was in violation of, the, of their Fourth Amendment rights. The report pointed to deficiencies in training and accountability. And in the aftermath of the report, the city, uh, the Chicago Police Department agreed to a consent decree, decree to eliminate these practices. Do you think this decree should be researched? And if so, what would be some factors that would let you know it's working? Um, yes, I certainly think that, uh, you know, there should be greater attention to the decree um, and to what are supposed to be the, the benchmarks, the outcomes um, related to it. Um, and that is something that uh, journalists uh, should be doing uh, more effort to investigate. Um, it's something that uh, researchers uh, should be doing. And that will likely depend, in terms of the researchers at least, uh, maybe what type of research we're talking about. So I'm an ethnographer. Um, I would be most comfortable sort of like, uh, sort of like participating in observing um, interactions that would be happening. So um, if reforming, changing police training uh, is one of the areas of concern um, that's mentioned in the consent decree, uh, then um, understanding uh, what happens in training requires somebody go through training essentially um, as a sort of like an observer. Um, I'm trained as an anthropologist, so the idea of, of a research method would be that you participate as much as possible, um, but you're always observing. Um, so, uh, Ben, your work in terms of uh, um, after an officer has gone through the academy um, and they are then, uh, you know, sort of like with you in a, in a patrol car and they're learning, uh, um, you know, sort of like uh, they're, you know, learning sort of like uh, what it is to you know to be working as an officer you know operating a beat and everything um i would ideally sort of like want to try to be there to see that sort of shift um happening um and to try to understand um what are some of the constraints around that because um the fact of the matter is when we're talking about a large organization um and trying to implement change within that organization, um, there can be a way in which it's sort of like, oh yes, I was at that workshop, so you know, check off that box. You know, my boss, uh, you know, is happy that I was at this workshop. Um, but if there's no way to hold me accountable to demonstrate that I am taking in changing my practices, my views, as a result of that workshop, um, then what has changed? It's nothing more than I'm sitting in the back and, you know, I'm sort of like nodding my head and going through the rituals. Um, and that would be true, not just for a police department, but for any fairly large organization, potentially, in terms of, uh, of the limitations uh, related to training. So 
part of this consent decree, I think, is an invitation um, for the city of Chicago, the residents of, of Chicago, um, and for the residents of the state of Illinois to engage in conversation about how do we reimagine policing? Because um, as uh, Ben, as you've, as you have stated, as Berto, as you have pointed out, it's morally outrageous that you've been, are working 19 days straight. Um, I mean, there's no amount of overtime compensation, in my opinion, that you can get because that's time away from your family. That's time away for you to be able to recharge your own batteries in different ways. Um, and the money, you know, is not going to compensate for, for lost time in, in that regard. So how do we think about policing and other types of, and, and, and deploying other institutions um, so that we are not having a situation of officers um, having to work crazy hours like that. Um. Crazy hours is something that um, I think certainly contributes to the challenges that we're facing in communities. But community organizing has brought together through Increase the Peace, Increasing the Peace and other programs, it's brought together uh, communities taking responsibility and resulting in zero shootings in the back of the yards, Brighton Park. Is that right, Berto? Yep. So a weekend of zero shootings in neighborhoods like Douglas, West Garfield Park, Austin, Inglewood, and Roseland would be amazing and could result in Ben getting some days off, particularly if it were in the Pullman-Roseland area. Ben, do you know of community groups that are working in that area? And how do you feel that they have moved to increase the peace in the area where you work? Um, <clears throat> I'm not directly involved or um, aware of the um, community organizers that work, um, that may be working in the Roseland area due to mostly the time that I work. I work overnight. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, a, um, I'm not working or I'm not around, I'm not interacting or having those type of uh, community interactions with um, with those, like I said, community organizers because it's not normal business hours. Um, one that I am aware of, I'm not exactly which order it goes, but my block, I think it's my block, my hood, my city. Um, I know they have done some work in the Pullman area. I know Alderman Bill has done a lot of um, good work and good things in the, the Pullman and Roseland area as far as bringing in. They just built a um, a new facility on 103rd and uh, Cottage Grove. Um, it's an athletic facility, indoor track, um, basketball, sports, um, right uh, next to Gately Park, if, if anyone, anyone is familiar with the area. Um, and he, he's um, brought in the, uh, the Pullman Center, um, which is another 
um, sports facility. He brought in the Walmart. So he's, he's done a lot of, you know, good things to bring in resources and those, uh, those resources, those activities and those, oh, those jobs to the community. Um, uh, but, but as far as, you know, direct knowledge of what uh, work is being done um, by the community activists and uh, such in the Pullman area is I'm I'm just not around to have those type of conversations, dialogue, and interactions just due to my my work schedule and the time that I work. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to to know though that you named a couple of organizations, and I think Berto was probably taking some notes because he has been working on this black and brown coalitions in the city, and. I really wanted to hear more about that because, you know, there is a history of black and brown coalitions in the city of Chicago, and yet that's a history that's not often shared. What made you realize that there was a need to build these coalitions and share this history, Berto? Yeah, so I um, I think I've always known there was a need to build black and brown coalitions in the city. I mean, we make up two thirds of the city, um, yet, in those neighborhoods that are made up of mostly black and brown folks, you see the largest disinvestment. Um, you see the largest need for a reinvestment of resources. And, you know, I live in back of the yard, which is 60% Latino and about 30% African-American. So it's a black and brown neighborhood. Um, I also ran for Alderman in the 15th Ward before, which incorporates neighborhoods like back of the yard and then directly south of it, West Englewood, Gage Park, Brighton Park. Um, on Saturday, I believe it was like May 31st, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we organized a, in an aftermath of the, the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis, we organized a Brown People for Black Lives event in Little Village where we invited people to come over with their cars so we can go downtown afterwards and to bring their, their uh, Mexican flags, their Colombian flags, to represent um, Latinx support uh, for Black Lives Matter. And, you know, it was beautiful, it was great. We, we packed up, we had to close down 26th Street, which is uh, one of the big, biggest avenues in the city. Um, and it was great. The next day, we got a call that, hey, uh, some businesses might be looted today. And we were the same folks who, we went out there, gathered a team, three o'clock, and we peacefully protected small businesses from being looted. We set up, uh, we boarded up businesses. We maintained a positive presence. And luckily, um, you know, 47th Street was not on the news as much because we were able to keep the peace as much as we could. And, but during all of the looting and this happening, there was a lot of black and brown tension. Um, there was, a lot of black and brown tension in the aftermath, and we realized that we needed to come out stronger and have, you know, part of the truth and racial, truth, racial healing and transformation piece requires us to be truthful, but also to, to shape the narrative and to ensure that that narrative is one that benefits uh, communities of color. So we wanted to add to the narrative and say, hey, sure, there's black and brown tension in communities of color right now, but we are stronger together. We, every time we've gotten together, we've thrown it down and we've gotten some good things done for our communities. So I hit up other organizers 
uh, from my block, my hood, my city, Wokalaway, um, another um, you know, very outspoken African-American activist and organizer and said, let's get together, let's show the community uh, that we can get together. And we had a, P a black and brown unity car caravan um, that same week on a Friday. Um, and we had about 500 cars with Pan-African flags, Mexican flags, Colombian flags, Argentinian flags going around all of the South side um, to express solidarity. And I think if we look at, um, you know, our neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, if African-Americans and, and brown folks, Latinx folks get together, um, it's way easier to fight for more resources than when we're fighting against each other for the leftover resources um, that exist in our community. So I think it's just about building those relationships, creating that solidarity, and then in moments of tension and in moments of despair to be there for one another, um, to affirm and acknowledge that black lives do matter. And then when it's issues of immigration for the same to be reciprocated when we have calls for abolishing ICE and ensuring that immigration authorities are not separating families or putting kids in cages. Um, so, yeah. Well, I really want to thank you, gentlemen. I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Clinton Nichols, and thank you, Benjamin Jones, Officer Benjamin Jones, and thank you, activist and organizer Berto Aguayo, for really having a deep and difficult conversation about policing in the city of Chicago and about how we can alleviate what really is the, not only the black and brown tension, but the black, brown, and blue tension that we're feeling in the city and actually in the country right now. So we know we have to think about things differently. We have to do things differently. We have to dialogue. And as Clinton talked about, as an ethnographer, we do have to observe, research, and feed that information back to us so that we can build a better society. So thank each of you for this. And um, we're a little bit beyond the time. So um, I'm sorry about that, but I think we had a really good conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. This conversation was excerpted in the Fall 2020 issue of the Dominican Magazine, which can be found on the university website www.dom.edu. That's www.dom.edu. Schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Ray Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, 
The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.